Hi. Hi. Can you hear me okay? Yep, I can. Okay, you sound great. You sound right next door. That's great. So awesome. I am talking with my really good friend that I haven't seen in how many years? <laughs> I believe we decided it was 22. <laughs> that's that's crazy. I was going to say 20 years, but okay, 22 years. That's uh, You've been counting the minutes ever since, right? Of course. Me too. <laughs> So this is, uh, seriously, this is a good chance for me to, to talk with people that I really care about. And um, this, this is, a, you know, this podcast started as kind of a joke. And then I realized this could actually be a serious thing where I talk to people that I really care about that I don't, don't get a chance to talk to. And you're definitely one of them. So uh, let's say who you are. Your name is Jen. I used to know you as Jen Winter. Yes. <laughs> your name is? Jen Weatherall. 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 Like I've moved from winter to all weather. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I never thought about that, but yeah. <laughs> That's, you're not so wintry anymore. Nope. Nope. Not so much. <laughs> Although you do live in a very bleak place called Canada, which is always winter. I feel uh, I don't I've never been there, but is it always dark and gloomy there? No. Our summers no. are wonderful. What area do you live in? At? Uh, southwestern Ontario. Southwestern. Okay. I was in Montreal once for one day in 1985, but that doesn't really, really count. Oh, wait, one day? Was it like a, 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 a layover or something? Yeah, no, it was actually a very pivotal day. It was July 20 something, 1985. Me, my brother lived in Vermont and we went to see Dire Straits, which were a huge band for me. And they played in Montreal. So we drove from Vermont to Montreal. And then we got to meet Mark Knopfler from Dire Straits that night. So that night is etched in my mind. Wow. And I remember Montreal. I remember it was like, you know, everybody was speaking French. And it, it looked really cool. And <laughs> that was the last time I was there. Okay. Do you go to Montreal? Um, I've been only once. So how far are you from like Toronto and Montreal? And I'm an hour from Toronto. Okay. I'm an hour south of Toronto. I am about seven hours from Montreal. I once actually, here you go. I once pitched in the Expo Montreal Stadium. Okay. I was fifteen, but you know, I I, I threw a ball. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, uh, that was in Montreal, huh? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> just a few years ago. So. So last time, let's just say that we met, we met in an acting class in New York City, fronted by a teacher named Jeffrey Ziner, who is still around. Mm -hmm. And I promised him that I would plug something. So let me just do this real quick. He is a great acting teacher. He's doing a free class on September 27th. His website is Jeffrey Ziner, Z-E-I-N-E-R.com. And he's just a wonderful teacher. And so if anybody's interested in acting, please check this out. And we met at this... Um, class and i think you took it for a few years or was it just one year yeah yeah i, I did it for two years is he still in the same location no i mean it's uh, it's manhattan but it's like he, he moves around i think he's you know pandemic kind of slowed things down and i haven't actually been with him for a few years but i've done a lot of acting in my life and he's definitely up there as one of my favorite directors for sure um yeah, and, those were good classes man <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah and you were you know you were I, you know, not to make you blush or anything, but you're definitely one of the, you know, you're an amazing actress to 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 see. I, I didn't see that much of your work, but every time I did, it was like, wow. Oh. You have... So let's talk a little bit about acting in your life. Okay. 
Um, so oh, actually, tell me a little bit about, so when you went to New York, that you were what, in your mid-20s? Yeah, I was there from 23 to 25. So I always thought that it was so brave of you to do that, at, you know, because I live a narrow way. I live in New Jersey and I just take the train to New York and then I just come straight back to my little apartment. And then you just changed. How, how did you how did that happen that you went from you went from Canada to New York? Yeah. So I was going to George Brown College Theater School in Toronto, which was one of the best schools at the time. I don't know where it's ranking at this point. So it may still be. Um, but I did uh, two out of the three years. Um, some non so fun things happened for me personally. And I thought, fuck it, I'm just running away to New York City. It was always a dream. I wanted to be like Madonna, eat popcorn, you know, sit right. around and hope that a star saw me and made me famous. So uh, yeah, I ran away to New York City. I lived in the Y on the Upper East Side with my cat. Wow. And then I found a room for rent in a house, actually in Jersey City. So I was living in Jersey City. Right. Um, and then took the bus and then the train to get into Manhattan to go to whatever I was doing. Uh, right. And did that for two years. Yeah, I think I actually remember staying at your place in Jersey City. I think. Uh, you did. Yeah, I don't. And we listened to Sarah McLaughlin that <laughs> night. I have I have vivid memories of that night. <laughs> uh, gosh. <laughs> we listened to um what was you know what was the uh sarah mclaughlin song that we were into uh i don't remember which specific one because i've always been into all of her music okay okay i think it was building a mystery okay that could have been yeah i was definitely into that song at some point in my life <laughs> yeah and you had roommates did you have roommates yeah i had two roommates and so one of them you know, i didn't have a lot of contact with and the other one who i'm still friends with now Right. He was uh, he was the guy in charge of staffing um, a lot of um, events. And so I ended up working for that staffing agency and getting to serve a lot of stars and work at the original stock exchange and do all wow. sorts of really cool things, being yeah. that I just run away to New York City on a whim. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it worked out for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. And then you did acting in the classes and we did, you did, um, and that, so you did two years and then you decided it was time to go back to Canada. Yeah. I mean, you know, at some point or another, you start to realize that being illegal in a country is not as comfortable as you thought it would be. Yeah. Um, and I wanted my mom. <laughs> right. I was 25 and I kind of had enough of feeling like that I was always struggling Right, um, right. And I also thought I would get more acting jobs in Canada, in Toronto specifically. So I went home and got an agent in Toronto. Okay, okay. I, you know, I still want my mom, but my mom passed away when I was a kid. So I, I know the feeling of still wanting your mom. Seriously, my mom lives 10 minutes away from me now. I see her a couple times a week. I talk to her every single day. <laughs> oh, that's nice, Janet. Why don't you just flaunt the fact that you have a mom? And sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm, I think I'm over it by now. I was 11. You know? Oh, I've accepted it, but um, but I don't want you to spend any time with your mom. No, I'm kidding. Oh, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, so okay, so then okay, so then you went back, and then then what happened? Like, so I got an agent in Toronto at the time, and he was decent. I had other agents that were interested in me that were more decent, um, but I kept being told that I had to lose weight. Uh huh. And I didn't want to be in a world where I needed to worry so much about my weight that I couldn't be worrying about 
my craft, like what I wanted to actually be doing with my life. So it all sucked. So I right. quit it all and I started a band and I toured across Canada. No, I didn't know about this. That you didn't like, know that? No. Listen, so wait. we haven't never... talked enough in 22 years. <laughs> well, you never call me. It's really terrible. <laughs> so wait, you had a band with original music and you were the lead yeah. singer? Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, what happened with that? Okay, so we were called Random Acts of Kindness. Great name, uh, right? Great um, name. But people knew us. We had a regular gig at um, a place in Toronto in Kensington Market. Um, our original stuff was really good, but I didn't feel like we connected enough unless our audience members continued to return to our shows because we didn't play any covers. Okay, right. Um, so I think that was a weakness of ours. We did tour across Canada. We went down to New York once and went and played at some bars there. Wow. Um, uh, you know... <laughs> Life happens, man. I met the man that I was going to marry, so I kind oh, of quit everything to be an adult. How did you meet him? You Was he in the band or? No, he was drinking at a bar and I was bartending there. I drink at a bar at a time, all the time and I never meet him. <laughs> what the hell, man? It was the wrong bar. <laughs> uh, okay. All right. Well, that's that's great. Um, so wait, did you write your own music? Did you write your own songs? Um. I have to say that my partner in crime did most of the writing. Okay. I did write a couple of the songs, but like he's freaking brilliant and he's still writing music. Um, I still try to write music during the pandemic when I had nothing else to do. I wrote a couple songs, but yeah, he was, he was the magic behind the writing of the songs for sure. Uh, what's his name? Ryan Neufeld. Wow. So, and did you play an instrument or did you, were you just singing? Um, I plucked enough that I could kind of write some music, but no, I just sang. Okay. I, I was like the face and the and the voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. I mean, yeah. that must be a feeling. I, um, you know, I love music. I see a lot of bands, but I've never, I've never, I've been on stage as an actor only, not as a musician. It must be an incredible, it's, it's a different feeling than acting, right? It was me taking back my power at that time, to be completely honest, because I was being told how to look, how to speak, how to eat. And then in the band, I got to just be me on stage, man. It was just about me and how I felt that night. And no one told me that it wasn't going well or that I wasn't doing it right. I just got to be me. So, yeah, yeah it was awesome. Yeah. yeah. And did you feel like you connected with the audience? Like, did you feel very, you felt free on stage? Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I'm one of those people that can just get up in front of people, right? And I get goofy and silly, but people laugh and connect and it just becomes a thing. Like, I just, yeah. 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 That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Because you're, I mean, and I, I don't really think that you're, do you think you're shy in real life or? Mm, no. No, I don't think so either. Like, <laughs> like. <laughs> But I, I mean, you know how sometimes people try people really just kind of become like another person on stage. But you're yeah. you're pretty much the same person, just like with, you know, with an extension of, of it's interesting, though, because you so you I mean, performed as a singer, you performed as an actress and now you're actually into playwriting. Right. Yeah, that's right. So that's a lot of different hats. Well, I'm also a visual artist. Um, so Which... it's really about finding whatever creative outlet I can do within my circumstances. Right, right, for sure, for sure. So let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, do you feel like out of all the mediums that you've worked on, is there one that's like the most fulfilling or do they just have different purposes? 
Um, I think it goes through waves, to be honest. Right now, my writing is in a really good place, but I would say three or four years ago, it was my visual art that was really kicking ass. Um, so okay. yeah, it just goes through waves. So what, what does visual arts mean? Um, okay, so I, I'm a portrait artist. Okay. Uh, I'm sitting in my bedroom right now and I have what like eight portraits <laughs> hanging on my walls, staring at me right now. Um, and you go into my living room, there's a shitload more. Out there. It's just, I enjoy, I enjoy the landscape of people's faces. I enjoy the expression in people's eyes. And right. I enjoy finding how to create that or recreate that with um, with colors, not the most ordinary naturalistic colors. What, what what can I do to change the color but still keep the landscape? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I've seen. I think I've seen some of your stuff a little bit. You 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 have an interesting way with art. With with just I remember we used to write letters a little bit, right? Yeah. And I remember looking at your handwriting and I was thinking, this is actually an interesting handwriting for some reason. That's just, I just remembered that just for, just oh. now. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. Okay. Oh, yeah, okay. I don't know. That, doesn't, that doesn't mean anything, but. <laughs> but so I do, like pe it. do people contact you to paint their portraits? Um, no. So okay. here, here's my feeling about visual art. Um, I have an aunt who is a great artist, but in my mind, um, I personally don't want to be a Xerox machine. Okay. And I feel like there are some artists out there that are judged by how exact they make, they, they recreate an image. Right. It doesn't work for me. I mean, it's lovely and I admire it. I don't, you know, it, that is de definitely a, a, a form of art and it's a classical form of art and it's a lot of work. And mm -hmm. I appreciate it, but it's not who I am, right? So okay. my art form is more about, like, I, I'm big on eyes. So I make the eyes crazy looking in comparison to the rest of the face or super intense or emotional or something. But right. this is my take is that I cannot recreate. So if someone's looking for a recreation of a photo, I'm not your person. I'm just right, not. Right, right. Right. So you have kind of a different take on a portrait and that's what makes your portraits unique. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so you just kind of do it for yourself in terms of. Yeah. So I've done. OK, here's the story, Danny. When I turned 40, I decided that I wasn't doing anything that I actually enjoyed. Right. Um, and so I started doing art. I started writing plays and I got back into acting all the same year. Right. And um so I, I've done three shows since then. Um, and I do these shows. I don't try to get any grants for them. They come out of my own pocket. I want to have some kind of social message connected to them. I want to feel like I've affected people by these portraits. And then I give them away. Mm -hmm. So uh, the second two shows that I did were about local people here, people that I know. I did their portraits. Uh, there were stories involved and whatever. But then I just gave them out, man. Like people were saying, why aren't you selling this stuff? And I'm like, because it's their image, not mine. Right, right. So no. it's, it's more about the story that I'm telling or the message that I'm giving behind it. And then being able to give them something to remember that they were in an art show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's very cool. That's very yeah. cool. I just feel like as soon as money is involved, right. my artistic eye changes. And I yeah. appreciate that. And I know at some point artists need to eat. But for me... 
because I have a, a day job, I don't need to do that. And I can allow my art to be what it wants to be without money. Right, right, right. And about the acting. So you've done three. Did you say you did three acting plays since? No, those are three art shows. Okay. So what about the acting stuff? Um, so <laughs> here's the story. <laughs> The first time, oh my gosh. Uh, what, is it you don't have to say anything. You don't no, no, to... it's okay. It's okay. The first time that I was on stage, so yeah. I, I took a hiatus after being in Toronto. I was in the band. I met the man that I was going to marry that I recently divorced. <laughs> yeah, okay. How many, how many years of marriage? Uh, 12 years of marriage, 15 okay. years together, two and a half years of separation, divorce. Gotcha. Okay. There's almost the full timeline since I left you, Dan. <laughs> I, I didn't make anything in the last 24 years. Gosh. I, okay, but that's, that's uh, just, this is all progress, Jen. It's yeah, progress. there we go. We're moving forward somehow. Um, yeah. What was so, I saying? Acting, acting, what? So oh, what's... right. Okay, so the first acting gig, I was actually contacting someone here local who's a playwright, um, who I'm a huge fan of, and... Um, I just wanted to write with her and she asked me if she would read, if I could read something because she was looking for an actor to play this lead role in a play she had just written. She wanted to workshop it. She had gotten a grant uh, okay. and she needed someone to play this role. And so I read the first page. She was like, you're hired. <laughs> wow. And so this play, I, I had to, my character committed suicide twice on stage. Oh my God. Uh, was stripped down out of her clothes on stage uh, kissed another man on stage and I was married at the time and I was on the stage for the entire play like even during intermission I was popping pills on stage the entire time wow. I was in a hospital gown that was open in the back like wow. it was just like oh my gosh That's a brave brave performance <laughs> jump right back in Jen <laughs> yeah yeah I'm sorry I missed that one that was a good one <laughs> <laughs> You have it on DVD? No. <laughs> okay, I'll just imagine it. Um, <laughs> no, but that, how did you feel about it, though? Did you feel like it was a very brave, like, thing to do? And did you feel like, it was it cathartic for you? It, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I honestly believe that was probably one of the best things I've ever done. Wow, wow. And that was, a, that was an original play, right? Yes. Oh, gosh, she's amazing. And so this was in 2007. What was it called? Do you remember? Um... Accidental Fish. Accidental Fish. And what's the name of the playwright? Um, I'm going to get in trouble here. It's okay. Uh, I, Patty. Uh, okay. Patty here from Flush Inc. Productions in Kitchener, Waterloo. Okay. Okay. Got it. Okay. Yeah. I just, I just feel like we need to mention that. Okay. Yeah. No, actually. So the character at the very end of this play, I like to tell this story. So my character comes out to address the audience. She's written a book about her experiences and everything. And she says at the very end that she wants to be remembered not for some crazy death, but for something good, maybe even something wonderful. And my tattoo on my forearm says, maybe even something wonderful. Wow. That's like awesome. it was just like, you, you, that was one of those moments in life for me, you know? Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. That's yeah. a, that's, that's a, <laughs> that's a goosebump moment. Right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, and was that, did you perform that just a few weekends kind of thing or? Yeah, unfortunately I was hoping it would get picked up somewhere, but it didn't. Okay. Okay. And then how did you start writing plays? Was that like a just organic thing for you? Um, yeah, that was basically, you know, in my marriage situation, I didn't have a lot of opportunities to get out of the house. Right. Um, so late at night, I would just sit. it was either I was late at night drawing or late at night writing. And I kind of, you know, they both fulfilled different things for me. And there's times where 
mindless drawing is what I need. And other times I want to be delving into emotions and human nature and humanity and everything else. Right. So it just kind of depends where I'm at. Yeah. Yeah. But that's great because listen, I have a lot of friends that are, are, you know, in marriages that aren't so great or they're just not so happy with their life, but they don't really do anything creative to kind of offset that. So the fact that you, you had this need to create and that just came out of you. And that's, I think that's so healthy, you know, it definitely saved me, man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really, I can count on, you know, it's so hard for me to see people that are not creative and they don't know what to do because they don't have an outlet. Exactly. If you don't have an outlet, I don't know how people survive. I they, I don't know. They, they, they somehow get through the day by just watching Netflix and, you know, having another glass of wine and, you know, but it's like, it's very weird. Like, I really, I think about this all the time because... You know, I, 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 there's something called survival mind, right? That you're always in survival mind. You're just trying to get through the day. Yeah. And then there's people that are able to transcend that and they go into another frame of mind, which is the creative mind. Right. Yeah. And it's and you're you're in creative mind a lot, which is that's why you're you have a sparkle in your eye. You know, <laughs> I'm trying to hold on to it. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, but you are because you know. I, I mean, I'm just giving you applause here because a lot of people don't know what to do with that kind of stuck energy. So, okay, so then, okay, so then you also have this blog that I've been kind of reading. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't read everything. Yeah, well, it's a lot of reading, so I, I totally understand this. <laughs> right, I, and maybe, but you know, you're you write really beautifully. You write um, in a way that's very accessible, but it's also personal. Mm. Um, and I'm just wondering how do when you when you write something, do you do you just whatever? How, what's the process for you? Do you just feel like writing about some topic and it just comes out of you like really fast? Uh, normally, it's something that's bugging me that I've been thinking about. So <laughs> it has to be something that's been itching at me because I feel like if it's just a hey, what do I feel right now? It's not uh, authentic or honest enough. But if it's something that's been itching at me and I need to write about it, then it's worth writing about. Right. You know? Right. Um, and then, but, you know. But let me just tell you that it's very amazing that you're able to identify what the itch is. <laughs> because a lot of people have an itch and they can't identify it. Hmm. Yeah. So again, again, I give you, you know, credit for being able to recognize what's bothering you, you know. I mean, I guess it's just the words. You know what? You know what it is. It's really it's practice because I do so much writing. That's right. The thing is, if I'm constantly writing, I constantly have words going on in my brain, right? And if you if you're doing that, you can identify things. You can come up with ideas. Like I just feel like words are constantly streaming in and out, and it's just. Yeah. I guess if nothing else, I'm um I've got a great sense of words at this point. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, they they're really are really well written. And um, there's also a sense some of them are about heartbreak, you know, yeah. which a little heartbreaking to read. But it's really cool. I think about heartbreak a lot. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I mean, it feeds it. And, and the thing is, is like, I've gotten into a lot of trouble for my police, to be completely honest. Oh, gosh. Because... Um, <laughs> Because the thing is, is that sometimes it comes from, like I said, an itch, something that's just like bothering me. And as I go on with the writing, it becomes like I end up making it first person. Right. And it becomes very personal to the reader when I, I don't really. People start to think, did she just write about me? Uh, you know, is there something wrong with her? What's going on in her? No, I'm just 
because it's I'm, I'm getting it out. Whatever so, the itch is, I'm getting out of my system by writing it. But if I don't write it in a way that my reader is connecting or relating to it, no one wants to read it. Right. So why, why did you get in trouble? I'm not following. Well, I've had some men decide that it was about them. Oh, sure, sure. So it's like a singer that writes a song and the, uh, and the listener thinks it's about them. Yeah. Yeah. I had to actually call the police once. <gasps> oh, wow. That's yeah. amazing. Wow. Yeah. But I think that it means that I'm doing okay if someone believes that strongly. That's what I'm trying to think anyway. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's, you definitely affected that one person for sure. Right. Wait, so did you try to say, hey, this is not really about you? This is just about how I feel? Well, he actually had read everything. He started from the beginning. I started this blog in 2016, and the last one I wrote was like two days ago. So right. he went through and read every single one of them, felt that he knew me and then right. felt that some of them may be about him. Yeah. 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 That's, 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 that's not cool. That's yeah. Scary. That's like in depth. Like that's yeah, just... <laughs> listen, like, uh, I've had some stalkers in my life and, um, you know, it's, usually, it's usually not very flattering because it's not like people that, you know, if, if it was somebody I really liked, I'd be like, yeah, go ahead and stalk me. <laughs> You know, <laughs> but, you know, they're usually not the kind of people. But anyway, um, that's what, <laughs> when you put yourself out there it's on the creative, you know, stage, whether it's writing or actually, I got to tell you something. I wrote a play once. Oh, OK. And it was very short. It was like, a, you know, it was like I never thought of myself as a writer, but um, it was a class that, you know, it was like a writing class and it was like 15 minute play. And I decided, you know, so and I, it was kind of cathartic. I wrote it sort of about the end of a relationship and I kind of tied it in with my mom's death. Um, and it was it was very cool. And then at the end of it, actors came from another college, a nearby college to act it out. And it actually was, you know, came out better than I thought it, it, it was going to be. And I shared it with some people and thought it was, you know, but I just don't feel the need. The problem with me in writing is I feel very selfish. Like I only want to write about things kind of about me. Right. And I feel that that's very selfish. And I mean, that that place served a purpose for me because it was kind of cathartic and I was able to kind of, you know, but I don't feel like I want to write a lot of plays, you know? Okay, well, that's fair. But I mean, like, you know, most of the things that I write about, I, I mean, writers write about what they know, right? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I have my own personal experiences in every piece that I've written to some extent or another. Sure. Um, sure. So it's not about selfishness. It's just about, you know, what you know, man. But if, yeah. I mean, if it's something you don't enjoy, then that's a totally other thing. I, I did find it. I found it, I found it very interesting to, you know, and I, I'm actually thinking about writing a, you know, a book, which I don't even, not even for publication, just for myself, you know? Yeah. And I'm taking a lot of writing classes and it's, it's an interesting, it's very, first of all, I, I recommend it to anybody just to, cause it's a great opportunity for self-reflection and to kind of identify what's most important to you in your life and to see the patterns in your life. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, that's a good one. Yeah. I mean, it's very therapeutic, but of course the, the actual art of disciplining yourself to write is hard. Let um, me tell you. Okay. So I got hired this year to write a musical. Yeah. I have never written a musical before. Right. Um, he's he's read some of my other plays. And I've actually, so this is an Irish musical. Okay. Um, and I've written an Irish play before. My ex-husband was Irish. I spent a lot of time in Belfast. So, you know, I somewhat understand the language patterns um, and the rhythms. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm, I'm writing this musical and I started writing it in January and it's due by December because he, we got a grant for it. Okay. Um, so I was working on it before I talked to you and I'm halfway through scene eight and there's what? about 12 scenes to 12 scenes all together. So I'm over my halfway mark, but you know, as you're talking about the discipline, the discipline of opening up my computer every night and not writing a blog, not sitting and surfing online, not, you know, writing whatever's happening in my mind, but to go to the dang musical. <laughs> I know, I know. But it's great that you have a deadline, you know? Yeah, that definitely helps. That definitely I helps. mean, like, I speak to a lot of songwriters and they say without a deadline, they would never accomplish anything. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. It's true. So. But and you're getting and there's people kind of depending on you for this project, right? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, it's it, I, this is probably the best writing project I've ever had in my life because we connect every two weeks to talk about what the next scene is about. So it's kind of like I'm not quite like coloring in the lines, but I'm being given an idea of images before I start drawing them. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And it's really interesting. Like, I'm not sitting there in front of a blank computer going, oh, my God, what am I going to write about now? I already know. I already know what the plot line is for the next scene. I've mm-hmm. already developed the characters, so I know them. And now let's just manipulate their body parts and make them do the things that they need to do in this scene. Right. So you have, right, you have the foundation. You just have to build the whole house. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting. I'm really enjoying the process of that. Yeah, that's awesome. Is it is it like a comedy or is it a serious... It's about the potato famine. <laughs> the potato famine. What about the potato famine? <laughs> well, not the humor side. No, actually, there's a lot of humor in it. So basically, it's about a family that gets onto a ship after they realize the potatoes are all spoiled to come to Quebec here in Canada. Okay. Uh, so it's about their journey on the ship. It's about how they come together before they leave to go on the ship and then what happens at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, I've got really funny little scenes in here. I've got a funny Irish character that makes up weird words and stuff. Um, right. There's there's love in it. There's a lot of death in it. Did they give you parameters when they asked you to write the play or did you just do it all yourself? Well, we've done a lot of discussions, a lot of meetings, a lot of discussions, a lot of like, let's create the timeline. This is where we want to get to. How do we get to there? Right. That kind right. of thing. So, yeah, there's a lot of. You could say guidelines. There's there's a lot of it along the way. So I'm definitely not like free spiriting this in any way. <laughs> right. But it must be challenging to actually come up with the musical components, right? Uh, I'm not doing that part. So I write some of the lyrics. Um, okay. But my, so my writing partner, the gentleman that hired me is doing the music and then some of the lyrics. We're kind of sharing in the lyric department. Okay. Okay, great, great. So you're 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 more than halfway done. That's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. And once this year is done, it's like we move on to workshopping. Hopefully, workshopping with some actors, some musicians. We're just right. gonna keep moving forward with it as long as we can. Right, right, right. So let's let me just ask you this. So all this creative stuff that you're doing, you're definitely like in the creative zone. I mm-hmm. would say, right. Um, does that? Because I I um. I'm not even sure what I'm asking here. Let me think about what I'm asking. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm asking is I, um, you know, I have a lot of friends, I have a lot of acquaintances and I still feel, you know, I still don't have like a love relationship that I'm really, uh, I haven't really found anybody in the last few years, which is fine, you know? And so I'm doing a lot of creative stuff and it kind of fills the void, I think. Yeah. But there is definitely, 
I guess the question is, does the creative aspect of does does all the creative stuff fill a huge and because I think I think you're also in the same spot as I am. I think you're still looking for somebody. Mm-hmm. So does the creative I guess the question is, does the creative stuff fill enough of the void so you don't so you don't you know, so you don't feel this huge emptiness all the time? <laughs> I guess- no, 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 not at all. Why do okay. I have a blog? Half of the blog is about heartache, man. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. I know. That's why I'm bringing it up because, you know, because it's a very, I think, I think, first of all, can I just say something about heartache? I think heartache is actually can be very beautiful. Mm-hmm. I think it could actually make you feel very present. And I think there is beauty in pain. Yes, definitely. So, you know, and I, I've, I've never really experienced heartache, heartache, heartache over. I had one relationship where I really, really felt it. It dissolved about, you know, uh, five, six years ago, but I never really truly felt, you know, I've had like relationships that ended and I was sad and, you know, but the true heartache, you know, that's something that is, that really stings, you know, and it, and it takes a long time to get over and it still shows up and, you know, here and there. But I, I'm trying to find the beauty in it because it also means, what does it mean? It means that I actually love the person mm. and, and it means that I have the capacity to, to love, which yeah. is something that I never really sure I had before. Like I always thought I love things. I love music. I love movies. I love, you know, I love Peter Hillman's songs and in and, and a way that is a huge, that's totally love, right? But it's not the same thing as loving a person. And I just never thought I would feel that way about a person. So it actually, I'm trying to say that the heartache that I felt was actually kind of, I was trying to find the beauty in it because it it proved to me that I can actually love, right? Heartache is such, like what you're saying here. This is really interesting to me because I'm not sure that I'm actually capable. Like, I don't, how do you know if you're capable of loving? I mean, what is heartache? Because See, the thing is, is that for me, I fall over and over and over again. And I question this and I wonder, like, what's the point? So right now I'm in a point where I'm like pushing myself back and no, I'm not going there. I'm not doing that again. But the thing is, is that the beauty of falling and the beauty of being hurt afterwards just kind of overtakes everything else. And you should just do it over and over and over again. But at the same time, is that really heartbreak? I don't know. Well, I think, well, I think there's a lot of shades. There's a lot of different. Exactly. Yeah. Is there, so, I'm sorry, Dan, is there 50 shades? <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I, 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 at this point, I'll be happy with two shades. <laughs> you know, I mean, 50 shades is a lot for me. I mean, I can't juggle that much. <laughs> I, I'm not a good multitasker. I could really focus <laughs> on <thinking of> time. <laughs> shades, go ahead, Jen. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're probably better at it than I am. Oh, goodness gracious. <laughs> I don't know, man. And oh, you know what? The other thing is, too, is like having two children. Like, my kids are nine and 12. Okay. So, you know, I, I, I have a world where I have two children. I have three dogs. Did you know this? I have three dogs. How would I know this? I don't know. I, <laughs> I, I have, I just recently adopted another dog because she has deformed front paws, her elbows are locked. And so she kind of bounces like a bunny. And we took her to the to the dog park the other day, you know, where you can take off the leashes and everything. And she wasn't used to being around other dogs because she's very small. And she just kind of bounced from side to side. And she's this furry mess. Like, she looks like a moth. And okay. she just kind of squealed and bounced from side to side. It's not a dog. I don't know what this is. It's not a... 
So I live what? with two dogs and another half a dog, maybe. Uh, um, yeah. Does the dog have its own website? I mean, can we promote the dog? <laughs> I thought about it. <laughs> Honest to God, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I really thought about it. I was like, ooh, maybe this would be an Instagram account that I could do, like I could hold on to and make it work. Oh um, oh but yeah, God. so I, I got, got to, yeah, I've got two kids. I got three dogs. I run a home daycare. And amongst all of that, I'm also trying to create date. Like, I know. I know. Bathe every once in a while. Uh, I run 30 kilometers a week. I'm. That's great. That's amazing. And so, by the way, oh, all that weight that you were worried about is probably not there anymore. I mean, I've, the pictures that I've seen, you look really great. Well, thank you. I mean, I did run back then to some extent, but they were just all assholes and worried about what it looks like on camera. And I don't want to be on camera, so I'm good, man. Yeah, no, no, I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> the minute you decided you don't want to be on camera, the weight came off. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but I mean, this is this is an important topic. Like to juggle all these things and to still have the energy to be able to create is really something that I think people that listen to this might will take away from it. You know, um, because a lot of people don't have the energy to create after a long day with two kids and three dogs. Yeah, I mean, it's true, but you know, it's something that. Okay, so in the dating world, you know how, uh, what is that movie, um, he's just not into you, he's he's not that yeah. into you, remember that yeah. one? Yeah, Jennifer Aniston, yeah. Yeah, okay, so they always keep talking about, well, if a man really wants to sleep with you, he'll find a way. So huh. I think about that in my day-to-day -day life. Like, if I really want to create, I, I'll just find a way. Right. You, right. you know, like, if you really want to do something, if you don't really, but you think it would be a good idea, that's a totally different thing. But if you really want to create, you're just going to. It's just going to happen. Uh, I, 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 yeah. I mean, it, that's the truth for you. But I think I, I know a lot of people that have the need. Maybe it's, maybe the need isn't strong enough for them. Maybe. I mean, there, there's something that happens when people kind of just feel locked and then they don't know what to do. And they take writing classes hoping to get inspiration or they take a, a Tony Robbins class or, you know, they, 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 they seek inspiration from an outside source rather from an, an internal source. Yeah. And you have the internal source somehow, which is great. Yeah, I guess. I, yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, I mean, it, listen. However, you get inspiration is. It, I mean, there's no judgment here. It's just. It's, it's just like I. I often seek inspiration in external, like music is external, and. Um, but I, I'm able to. You know, a lot of people look at me and they think they, they're very curious about me because. I think they sense that I have this sort of like childlike creativity inside of me. Mm which they're lacking I or, or they feel like they're lacking i think i think everybody has it but you have to kind of be aware of how to find it i think so uh, a lot of people kind of gravitate towards me in in that way and it's not it's that and it's not conscious they don't really they're not really explaining it that way but you know like like little kids i, I don't have kids of my own but when i when i you know i have like uh, cousins that are little and I just went to a, a summer resort that my family has and all, all, all these little kids were just gravitating towards me. <laughs> and I, it's horrible. I have to escape from them, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, no, I'm kidding. It's, it's actually a lot of fun. And I, I have this like childlike thing about me um, that I use. I'm just saying that, you know, some people just kind of lose that. Uh, I think the childlike, I'm equating the childlike thing with the creativity. I think I'm, I'm marrying those things together. 
I wonder if that's part of the meter. Like if you had a group of people in a room and yeah. let the children go, like a you know a, a a couple dozen children just run in the room and see who they gravitate towards. I wonder if that could be like a measurement meter or oh. something to see who has that inert uh, ability to oh. create from you're, from you're internal so right. sources. You're so right. I mean, they gravitate towards me in like in like two seconds. It's like even kids that I don't, I don't know, you know, it's I think they also sense that I don't have an agenda, you know, like I just I think there's something about being kind of Zen, you know. Well, and you also don't have walls up, right? I mean, not now. I used to. But uh, now I feel pretty, you know, together. Um, yeah. and, I, and I don't feel like I need to apologize for you know, a lot of women that I meet, not a lot of women, but with some, some women that I meet are sort of like, you know, I still have, you know, very survival type jobs, you know, and, and I don't, that's not a priority for me. I just need to make enough money to live and then I'm happy doing creative stuff. So I don't, but I, for many years, I felt the need to justify that and I felt very defensive about it. And now I don't give a shit. Good for you. Thank you. Thank you. But some women, you know, even last week, some, uh, you know, I had a situation where I almost met somebody and then she said, you know, the lack of an adult job, she called it, was kind of a red flag. And I said, listen, I work all the time. You know, I'm I'm helping senior citizens in my community and I'm, you know, doing I mean, I'm doing a lot of stuff, but it's not the orthodox, you know, nine to five adult label, you know. But anyway, uh, that's uh, I'm, I'm digressing. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, listen, that is a red flag right there. Just saying. Yeah. Like as soon as we are labeling other people as either having adult jobs or not adult jobs. Yeah. We are not taking these jobs with us. I just had this conversation today with my running partner. I did a 9K run today and we were running today and I said, look, our jobs are not identifying who we are as humans. We yeah. are taking them with us. They are not deciding how valuable we are. For sure. And it's also not deciding how long we live just because we have a good job. None of that stuff is worth anything. I mean, I understand we all need to live and we all need to have resources to be able to do that. But yeah. in the end, dude, none of that is important. Yeah. Good. Uh, I, would, I would even argue that we actually would live longer if we didn't have a job that we didn't, that we exactly. couldn't Exactly. I agree with that. High five on that one, man. High five. High five. <laughs> high five from New Jersey to Canada. <laughs> you know, why don't you live closer, Jen? This is really annoying. Like, you should live <laughs> Okay, so can I just bring this up? Yeah. Okay. So the last time I saw you, we I was about 25. Right. And you and I, I don't remember if it was that night that you spent in Jersey or not. No, the last night that we met was we met at Penn Station and we took me to some restaurant uptown. Oh my gosh. You have a much better memory than me. What the heck? I have kids. Um, I don't have kids and I don't have dogs. That's right. Okay. We'll go with that. Um, well, maybe it wasn't that time, but I remember one of the last times that we hung out yeah. I made you promise that, mm -hmm. do you remember this promise? No, I don't. Okay. When, when I was 30, if neither of us were married. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that turned out great, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> you broke the promise because you went ahead and went to Canada and got married. I know. I, I met the man I was going to marry when I turned 30. It was like, all right, Danny, you're done. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, I'm, uh, it's fine. Listen, well, now we could extend it to like 75, no? Oh, good. <laughs> I mean, I probably won't be great in bed then, but. Uh, oh, my oh. God. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe there'll be some kind of cure by then. Who knows? <laughs> um, but no, listen, listen, you, 
I, listen, I give you a lot of credit. I've tried my hand at relationships. You know, if we were together, who knows if that would have been, you know, that would have been an interesting. I don't even know if I could live with a woman at this point. Yeah. You know, like you've done it. You've done like, can can we talk about that? Or yeah, that... yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. What what do you think? You know, not to be you know too personal, but was it was it just like you kind of felt that like you guys were going in different directions and. You know, so, uh, we were very different people from the start and I felt like my clock was ticking and I really wanted to have children. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I don't think we were on a good page from the beginning, but I wanted us to be, and I think he wanted us to be too, but we were just, it was like, we were missing, we were missing each other in the night often. Like it just, right. yeah. It, yeah. But when, when did you start feeling that way? Was that like a year into the relationship or before we got married? Okay. Okay. <laughs> Okay, well, uh, it's it's good that you uh, you know you you led with your instincts. <laughs> Waited twelve years just in case. Come on, maybe this is the year. Yeah, right. People can change. People can change. <laughs> not, not really. <laughs> okay, so so but so because he you didn't think he wanted to have kids, or he just what he was on the fence about it. Oh uh, no 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 we I mean we we planned on having one kid. We ended up uh, okay. like yeah. Yeah, okay. it was part of the, the agreement was I wanted to have kids. So if we were going to be together, I wanted to have kids. That was basically part of our understanding between the two of us. But I mean, you know, from the very beginning, he told me he wanted me to have an adult job. Right. Right. Um, and I was in a band and I was working in a bar and, you know, like, you know, it's not as adult as maybe someone that works in a professional uh, yeah. position once but I was uh, a fun person I was a happy person and I was doing good like I was doing I was progressing yeah uh, the band was amazing uh, anyway yeah yeah hey did, did the band release anything by the way or not not really uh no you know okay have you ever heard of Matt Dusk Matt Dusk yes no okay so he's like um he's He's a crooner, kind of like Michael Bublé, but just didn't make it as big as Michael Bublé. Okay. Um, and the guy that produced his first album produced our single. Um, and it was around the same time. So basically, I should be married to Matt Dusk right now. Um, but I have met his wife and his child. Um, and they're lovely. So, I mean, no offense, but I, I kind of love him. Yeah. No, that's uh, well, so, yeah, we did one single that went really well. And then our plan was to save money to be able to do an entire album. And then yeah. I met this man at the bar and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So was the single ever released like on Spotify or something or? No, because back then it wasn't there. Yeah. Dude, there was no Spotify. No, I know. I know. But sometimes on Spotify, things, old things get released, you know. No, not really. Okay. I mean, right. since then. I have written my own songs and I have friends in the States that have put it onto radio shows and put them onto some podcasts and stuff. Awesome. So I've actually done better on my own. <laughs> yeah. Is your stuff on Spotify? Um, I'm not sure if it's on Spotify. I'll send it to you. I have a link oh. for it. Okay. All right. Great. 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 And it's under, it's under your name. Yeah. 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 Okay. Awesome. Um, yeah. So, okay. So then just, throughout the marriage it was it a you know was it just up and down was it you know so but towards the end i'm just trying, i'm just trying to think about the trajectory of the so it's 12 yeah. years yeah so so we had two kids it was interesting because i found myself in a place where all i was doing was looking forward to the next thing okay right so i wasn't living day to day whereas now it's the opposite but back then it was i was not living day to day he was doing his own thing he wasn't really interested in what i was doing not right. that he wasn't interested in me, but we just had very different 
right. uh, hobbies and interests. Right. Um, and I was doing my own thing and we were kind of connecting at home. And I was also playing housewife. Like I was, you know, doing all the meals, taking care of the children. I became when I had both of my kids naturally on the couch in the living room mm-hmm. that I still have here in this house. I brought it with me because I figured, you know, the kids needed to have their couch. Um, right. So. <laughs> After I did that, I became a postpartum doula. I volunteered with the city to help women learn how to breastfeed properly. Like I went full force into motherhood uh-huh, uh-huh. because I didn't want, I don't do anything half-assed, Danny. Like this is not something I do. This is not Jen. Right. We, we, right. I just don't do this. So I was doing all these things and he was like, what the fuck? I want to go out and have a night out and go drink and, you know, whatever. And I was like, nah, I got children. I'm breastfeeding. I'm like, no. So I didn't give in to any of that stuff. So mm-hmm. I was extreme. I was definitely extreme. Um, but we didn't, we were not partners that supported each other. Right, right, right. You know? Yeah, yeah. So There's so- no way that that can last. There's just no way. Yeah. Oh, listen, 12 years is a long time to be in that, you know, and, and you, gave it, you definitely gave it your best shot, you know, so it's great. I mm-hmm. mean, you got two. How are your kids? Are they are they cool? Uh, they're good. It's difficult. Do we, do we do we like your kids? We love my kids. Are you okay. kidding? They are both. They are both mini versions of me, but they're opposites of each other. Okay. So my youngest kid is like the crazy, uh, ridiculous faces dancing around the house, crazy kid, and then the other one is a little bit like more about a fashionista and the popular kids' school, and you know what I mean? Yeah. It's both of these things together. Make- yeah 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 <laughs> and so, right that's interesting because you you have a lot of personalities so it makes sense that your kids would have oh no i only have one this you only have one <laughs> you, you have one personality but there's a lot of layers in the personality oh, okay all right i'll take that <laughs> I, I, have, I have to like backpedal every time a little I bit. <laughs> it's so difficult to have a podcast i should not have a podcast no what the heck were you thinking <laughs> i don't know i don't know but this is cool i mean i really you know it's really cool to have you know really because you know this podcast it sounds like it would be like, you know, it's my name and it's my show, but it's really to celebrate the other person, you know, and 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 it's, it's very rare for me to do unselfish things like that. Well, I think this is really cool. I, I, think I enjoy this. Yeah, this is really fun. And I, I, I think, um, you know, I mean, I, I, I think about because most of the day I really think about myself all the time. I mean, imagine being me, Jen. <laughs> I mean, I mean, put yourself in my Jewish shoes. OK, I. I <laughs> I don't have kids. I don't have a relationship. I'm all in my head all the time. Yeah, that must be a scary place, man. <laughs> uh, I don't do drugs, you know. There's nothing. It's just me and my thoughts all. No, it's fine. It's fine. I, I, you know, in between the years that you've known me, I have battled with like serious depressions and stuff. And um, the last time I had one of those was two years ago and it was really severe. Um, so and I've been really well for about a year now. Mm, good. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, every day that I'm like, uh, this is kind of a blah day. I just remember what it was like to be so incapacitated that um, every day is great now, you know, that's awesome that you're able to do that. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, again, that's that's the thing about the whole beauty and the pain thing. Like if I didn't have those dark episodes, which were really dark, I was I can't even tell you how dark it was. Um, two years. I lost two years out of my life, you know, just a few years ago. Yeah. Um, but you know, but then when I come out of it, I'm like, oh, the sun is, uh, you know, the blood, the sky is blue again. And, uh, you know, and, um, so 
it's very interesting. You know, it's very, it's interesting to, I think people that have a lot of pain um, are able to sometimes appreciate life more than someone who just doesn't really have a lot of pain. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That makes total sense. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so everybody out there, you should go out and just have a lot of pain. <laughs> I, <laughs> go down the street, go look for pain. <laughs> go, go hurt, you know, just, 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 uh, you know, but um, it's preferable to get inspiration from, I often think about this, you know, like, you know, artists that I really like, um, some of their best albums are after a divorce or after a terrible year, you know, um, but it's preferable to get inspiration out of pleasure versus pain, right? The only thing I don't like about that, though, like through my blogs, is I feel that people really listen to me after my divorce, after this most recent breakup in April. And I think, yeah. like, dang, where were you when I was writing lovely things? You only listen to me when I'm in fucking pain. I know. Because sometimes, I know, isn't that interesting? Because I think maybe, maybe people have more empathy when someone is hurting. I don't know. Or maybe you're, maybe you're. Maybe I'm more they, interesting. It's interesting. Or maybe they just relate to it more. Or maybe they just feel more empathetic. I don't know. I mean, that pain, pain does bring people together. I mean, look at the, it's interesting though, because on Facebook, like a lot of people just put their best, you know, yeah. self, you know, they, there's not a lot of people saying, hey, I had a terrible day today. Yeah. But it's, um, I mean, like when it's extreme pain like that, it's kind of like going past a car crash and you you slow down because you want to watch and you want to see what's happening, right? It's yeah. It's about empathy. It's just about like, what happened? I want to hear the story. I want to know what's going on. What happened to her or him? Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think your blogs do it in a really nice way because it's it's personal, but it's not, There's you still leave room space for the reader to kind of think about themselves, you yeah, know? That's fair. That's fair. There's not so much bloodshed, really. You're right. There's no, you're right. Right. It's it's not it's not a horrible experience to read your blogs. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> okay, good. <great. laughs> I want your next blog to be like really happy, <laughs> and you know to just uh, just. But you know, um, just the the whole thoughts about being creative when you have a lot of things to juggle. What would you say to people? Like how people that are stuck and are not able to get that creative spark. What, I mean, you said before that you just have to do it. Yeah. Is that that's is that is that your best advice to, for, for people just to do it? Listen, if you can take 10 minutes to sit down in front of a piece of paper or in front of your computer, 10 minutes, that's what it takes. You do that 10 minutes every day. It doesn't have to be the same time of day. I mean, we're, we're not clocks. We're not machines. We have a lot of stuff going on. If you get up every morning and you do it 10 minutes, okay, you're too tired in the morning. Just before you go to bed, sit down in front of a computer, in front of a piece of paper. I used to do it during lunchtime. I would put the kids all to sleep for a nap. And yeah sit down with a piece of paper and just draw just for 10 minutes, man. That's right. all it takes to just get your mind working in that way. Right. Right. No, that's great advice. It's just the act of, of, of doing it. But I think a lot of people would feel like, what, what should I write about? You know, they start to censor themselves right away. There's like an inner critic in their heads that comes out like full blast when they try well, to. Just... You know what? That's the same thing as acting. So I'm just about to start teaching acting as well. At um Nice. And it's very much about getting out of your head. You know this. It's getting out of your head and into your body. So it's not about what you're writing. It's not about what you're drawing. It's not about what you're creating. It's getting your hand to just do it. Right, right. And It's getting out of your head. If, if it means you write the same word over and over again every day for 10 minutes, then mm -hmm. do that. I mean, it may take two weeks until you write some other words, but at least you're, you're getting into your body and out of your head. Your head is right. not a good place to be in. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Getting out of your head is the secret of getting from the primitive mind into the creative mind. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm convinced. And uh, I do some meditations, you know, I did like, I, I, you know, everybody has 
different ways of meditating. I just do, you know, TM, which is just thinking of a sound. Um, but it's so helpful. I used to, I used to think it was bullshit. Um, and it's so helpful to quiet the brain. And even, even if your thoughts come in and you just, you know, it's, it's just a way to, to become an observer for a second of your, instead of, instead of just being on full, full, you know, director mode, instead of being a director, be an observer. Yeah. Yeah. And some people think that being observer is being weak, but it's not, it's actually a strength. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, look at us. Look at us with our wisdom here. Seriously. Dang. This is like heavy stuff for this late at night. Wow. I, I know. I know. I'm inspired. I, I know. I know. We could go, we could go on for a long time, but my app is saying that we have to kind of, we have a few more minutes and that's it. So, um, but I, we could definitely do it again, man. Anytime. I yeah, mean, yeah. I'd be totally up for it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you, when your play comes out or, you know, or if you find, uh, if you find that you wake up tomorrow, you're like, ah, you know, that guy, Danny, he's really something like I really I got to move to New Jersey and just be with him. <laughs> you know, that that could happen, Jen. OK, I'll let you know. <laughs> I'll take that as a maybe. <laughs> OK, maybe. Yeah, no, that's fine. That's all I need, Jen. I just I don't really need a relationship. I just need the promise of a relationship. <laughs> that's all I need. That and some cornflakes. I'm good to go. Cornflakes. <laughs> Yeah, that's the only thing I can cook, Jen. Okay. <laughs> so, um, what else can we say in in closing here? Um, I did you feel that we covered good stuff here? I think we did. Yeah, yeah, we definitely did. I mean, yeah, I, I, mean, I I'm not quite sure that we covered 22 years. No, but, no, know, no. We we did a good job in starting. <laughs> yeah, we covered like the surface of the ocean. That's right. Yeah, is there anything else that's happened in those last years that you, that that we missed? Um. Uh, <laughs> uh. Uh, no, I think not. Uh, I mean, come on, there's always something. But anything I want to mention right now? No. Okay. Oh, I, I I wrote in a haunted house recently, and then won the contest for that. So there's something. That is uh, okay. That's something. Yeah. That's something we could talk about another time, maybe. Definitely, definitely. So let's promote the blog again. Let's. Uh, what's the uh, address there? It's arthwhocares at wordpress.com. Arthwhocares.wordpress.com. And your name is Jen Retherall, right? That's pronounced W-E-A-T-H-E-R-A-L-L. -L. We're, we're going to have to come up with a, a title for this episode, Jen. Oh, because uh, I have to title, so I'll I'll text you later. And be like, I'll have to, you know, figure out what the title. Because we have a lot of we we covered a lot of stuff. Okay, cool. We'll figure this out then. Okay, okay. So listen. So thank you for doing this. Really, really appreciate it. Loved it. I love doing it. Okay, let's do it again. Okay. Say goodbye, Canada. <laughs> I mean, I mean, goodbye, Canada. <laughs> bye, Jersey. See you later. Okay. Bye. Okay. Bye. <laughs> there hey can you hey hear me now? I can he I good i can hear you cool um can you hear me well that's the question yeah you're a little bit low in the volume but i think i think this is fine okay um let me see here so you can hear me fine right yes i do okay so let me just say this is we've had some technical difficulties here so this is our third attempt fourth attempt fourth. here virtually with my friend heshi uh who is also goes by the hesh um, me and Heshi, like I said before, but nobody heard it. <laughs> uh, we have a lot of uh, connections uh, in our life. And one of them is that we're big um, 
music fans, the Hesh is actually a, a musician. Uh, and we'll talk about that. Um, mm -hmm. But I wanted to start just because we, we have this connection where we grew up in Israel. Um, and I wanted just to talk with you a little bit about your experience about being in Israel. Okay. Um, so, um, so we were there at sort of the same time, but we didn't know each other, right? I grew up in Haifa. Mm -hmm. And what area were you, were you at when you were there? Well, we moved, we, we moved to Rehovot in the center of the country. And uh, we were there for seven years. Okay. Yeah. And um, why were you? Why, why did why did your parents move there? Well, my mother has a lot of family there, and uh, the, between that and there, at the time, now it's not 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 as much. But at the time, there was a fairly significant community of uh, English speakers there. Okay. Uh, so between the two things, uh, that was pretty much what drew us there. Right. And uh, it was interesting to me that we talked a little bit earlier about the fact that you actually had a hard time, you know, assimilating and you you felt a little rebellious. Right. Right. Um, and I, I had the same reaction. I was very, you know, I had I had family here that I wanted to be with and I had some family problems there. So I was very sort of anti Israel at the time. Um, which now I for I feel differently now. I love I love Israel and I feel very much at home there a lot. Um, but at the time I was really listening to you know I was listening to the American music like you did. Yeah. Um, and so what what share with me a little bit about uh, what you said before about how, how you felt when you were there. Well, uh, as I was saying, I. I you know, whenever these days I, I talk to people about, uh, you know, moving to Israel, you know, anybody who's contemplating making Aliyah, you know, moving to Israel with their family, I tell them, you know, don't do it with teenagers. Right. <laughs> do it, you know, if you got, if your kids are little or if they're grown, that's great, you know, but if you're going there with a teenager, you're going there with a lit fuse, you know. Right. You know, I was, I was 13, uh, almost 14 when we moved. Uh, I was, I did not want to leave, you know, where I was, I was, I was really beginning to come of age, uh, in my, uh, in my Long Island beach town, you know, with my friends and, uh, you know, the hormones were kicking in and, uh, not really a good time to yank the, uh, yank the, yank the rug out from underneath and say, you know, sink or swim, you know? Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, ha I had the weird experience, too, of like coming here in the summers and spending time with my family here and then going back there, mm -hmm. you know, for the year. So I, I had like this very confusing um, identity. Like, you know, do I feel American? Do I feel Israeli? Um, did, did, your, did your feelings change uh, when you were there? Like at the beginning, you felt that way. Did, did, did you get like, did you start to feel more, more at home there? Well, not really, actually. I mean, because uh, <laughs> okay. uh, look, I went, uh, you know, I, w I was saying I spent my uh, all four years of high school in Israel. Uh, and then I attempted to learn in yeshiva for a little while. And uh, that didn't really work out. So I, uh, you know, I resigned the uh, yeshiva deferment and uh, got drafted. And uh, I did full three years in the army. Right. So my first two years in high school, I went to this, you'll excuse me, a real s-hole of a place, a real dump. You know, was the 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 one the one positive thing about that school was at the end of my block, so I didn't have to sleep in the dorm because that place, <laughs> you know, you know the movie Midnight Express. You know, it it had just come out, 
yeah at that time and uh, we were always cracking jokes how it resembled you know Sagmachalar prison and uh, oh my god man that movie is so dark yeah and uh i i really that that place did not it was it was a dump really. It it was not this, a, it was, this was this was in, in Rehovot? This was in Rehovot. It was a Yeshiva high school. Yeah. Um, that's so and, that's so funny, man. I had the same experience. I went to a place like that in Haifa uh, and you know, I, I it was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. I mean, that was like the one of the worst experiences of my life. <laughs> yeah. I mean there were there were in my case, you know, there were some uh some other English speaking students there. Yeah. Uh, which was good. It was a breath of fresh air actually, and uh uh, our English teacher, actually, he was also an American uh, Ole, you know, who had moved there, I don't know, many years before. And that was the class that I did the best in. I mean, quite naturally, I was able to do the Bagrut when I was still in 10th grade. Yeah. And I, I aced it. I mean, you know, I, I, I could have done it in my sleep. <laughs> right. The other classes, though, were more difficult, you know, and, and it wasn't just the language. It was also the mentality. I, I just, you know, it was, it was just so much easier to tune out. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and and after and after two years of bumping along in this place, I mean, and, and going at tutoring lessons and who knows what else. I mean, we, my 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 father, you know, came to the very wise conclusion that this is really no way to no way to go to school. You know, you know, the next the next two years were. It, it wouldn't have been a good thing to continue the same way for the next two years. You know. So, yeah. Right. Because you were, you were feeling like a misfit and you were yeah. feeling down out. And we looked around, and, and uh, we actually found a place in Jerusalem. Uh, it was called Or Yushalayim. I mean, there's a yeshiva in Israel today called Or Yushalayim, popularly, yeah. popularly known as the OJ. Um, <laughs> this was the forerunner of that of that yeshiva. It was. It actually started its life uh, as part of Bravender's yeshiva. It was like the high school under the auspices of Rabbi Bravender's yeshiva in Jerusalem. And, uh, okay. and really it was a, uh, a kolboinik, if you will, you know, a collection, uh, a, a collection pot, you know, of all the re all the English speaking rejects from all the Israeli schools. You know? <laughs> right. The people that couldn't, that couldn't cut it, you know, there, you know, I, 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 I didn't make it in the place in Rehovot, and uh, I met, it was, you know, I was there for 11th and 12th grade, and those, I would have to say, were the best two years of my life. It was like the polar opposite of what came before, right. and I was living in a dorm in Jerusalem, in the city, and yeah. I finally had the chance to, you know, make good on some old rock and roll dreams, and, you know, that's where I started my first bands, and yeah, I met I, one of the first people I met in that school was uh, was my friend Izzy uh, Izzy Kiefer. You might have seen him on uh, on my Facebook page. Yeah, yeah. And you might and you've definitely heard him if you've heard my music because he plays the drums on on most of my songs. Yeah. And so that's where we met uh, at the beginning of eleventh grade, and we bonded over the fact that we were both big Blues Brothers fans. Right. You know, the movie and the music. And uh, right. We we decided, you know, yeah, you know, life imitated art. You know, we got to put a band together, and there were all kind all kinds of adventures all over Jerusalem until we found our musicians. It was it was cool. You know? Yeah, right. I mean, we didn't like a crash a car through the mall or anything like that, but uh, it was it was a close. <laughs> <event>. <laughs> right, right, right. You weren't you weren't exactly John Belushi. <laughs> right, but but, but I, I did a pretty decent Dan Aykroyd. You know, I, you know, <laughs> yeah. Elwood, you know? 
Yeah, but that's interesting, man. It's interesting that to, to you know, my experience with Israel, that I've, I had like some great, great, great experiences and then some really not so great. That's why when I go back there, it feels very confusing to me. Because um, it's a country filled with beauty, you know, the beaches and, uh, and the, 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 the friendships that I have in Israel are probably more intense and deep than I have with my American friends. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I also have a lot of baggage because I've, I've had a lot of like, you know, you know, my mom passed away and I didn't get along with my father. So I had a very it was it was a kind of a bi- I have a very bipolar feeling about Israel, um, which I think you do, too, in a way. Yeah, I do. I mean, uh, look, my my politics, I'm not going to get into a political discussion, but I'll, I will say that they did not change as a result of moving to Israel. I, I, know, I know some people that had a hard time adjusting to Israel and then they came back to the United States and they got all, you know, religious and they started, uh, they affected this whole anti-Zionist stance and all the rest of that stuff because really of the bad experience that they had there. And I was not like that. I mean, right. politically, I always remained pro-Israel. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Staunchly so. I mean, my father of blessed memory, I mean, he was a political activist and he actually was a member, was a voting member of the Central Committee of one of the major parties in Israel. And he, he lived and he breathed it. And me, yeah. I was I was not like that. I mean, I was I was not and I am not a political animal. I mean, I, I'm, I'm more of an artist than a writer. And, uh, you know, yeah, but, but my the, my political beliefs themselves actually were quite similar to my father's and, and they still are. And yeah, that was not affected by by the bad time that I had there. I mean, my, right. my, my difficulty was really more, more social and more, you know, yeah. more, more fitting in and everything like that. And, and yeah, yeah, you know, it is, it is a beautiful country. I mean, there's no question about that. And, you know, there's the, the beaches, as you say, there's the history, there's, you know, there's like thousands of years of Jewish history over there. It's impossible to not be moved by it in some way. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you don't have to be like a religious yeshiva bacher or whatever. I mean, you just go there and it's it's it, it gets into you, you know. Yeah, yeah. So there there is that. So so yeah, it was it was really an ambiguous thing because on the one hand I was like really you'll excuse me, really pissed off at having to move, but on the yeah. other hand, you know, there are feelings towards Israel that you just can't can't help but have, you know, positive yeah. ones. So Yeah, and I talked to a lot of people who kind of feel the same way. I mean, people that actually live in the country, they actually feel mm-hmm. the same way, you know. It's a very a very intense place where you have a lot of conflicting feelings and that you know just living there kind of enhances you, anything that you feel you know it's a very it's a very feeling or kind of place i think yes so when when you went into the army did you do you remember those years as being positive years or oh, no not at all <laughs> again, <laughs> okay. it was, again it was like high school in an interesting sort of way the first half of it sucked <laughs> and the second half of it was an improvement you know, okay. And again, I transferred from one part of the army to, to another, just about at the midpoint. Right. Um, and it, right. Was really, okay. it was really because of because I agitated for it because, yeah. you know, I, I all right, I'll roll it back a little bit. Shortly before uh, my draft notice, uh, Izzy uh, was already in the army. And, uh, you know, he did not try to learn English either. He went straight in at, you know, the, the, sum, the summer after graduating high school, you know, he, he got drafted. Uh, and eventually, uh, after several months of, uh, of bumping along over there, he got into the 
the La Catarabanut, you know, the, uh, the the military chaplaincy corps orchestra, you know, the, yeah. the army rabbinate, you know, orchestra and choir. Yeah. Uh, so he already had that connection and he was able to put me together with the musical director uh, of this unit who was uh -huh. not, who was, I mean, he was, he was a reserve, he was an officer in the army reserve, but he was, he was in the uh, category of a, uh, of a civilian employee of the military. Uh, uh -huh. And he, he gave me an audition. You know, I went to his, to his, to his home in Ramat Gan and uh, I played the piano for him. At first he started throwing me all these, uh, you know, play me a ninth, play me a 13th, you know, and I, I had no idea what the hell he was talking about because I, I learned most of my music by playing in bands and assimilating, you know, what I learned from records and from other musicians and everything like that. So it, it looked like it was going to, to fall flat until I, I, I just started jamming on this blues tune that, that was like full of sevenths and ninths. And then he, then that convinced him, you know, it was like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, you know what you're doing here. Okay. Got it. So we, so we, we left that. Uh, and he says, first, you know, when you get into the, into the uh, induction center, you know, the Bakum as it's called. Yeah. Um, Find your way to the Rabbanut and get in over there. Once you're in, I can take care of the rest. Okay, that's great. Now, the problem with that is, is that soldiers like new newbies, you know, green recruits on their first couple of days in the army are afflicted with this, you know, what they call in Hebrew, helen. You know, it's shock. Shock. You know, they're in a state of shock. You know, they're stunned, you know, by, by this whole new you know, venue, this whole milieu, if you will, you know, it's like, how do I, how do I navigate my way through this whole thing? You know? Yeah, right. And I was, I, and I was hit hard by that also. And, you know, right. How, how in the world am I supposed to get to the Ravenut? You know, I, I, they, you know, they give, they interview you during those first few days and they, you know, these officers, they ask you, okay, so these are the choices. What you, you know, you, you have, you have tanks, you have artillery, you have this, that, the other. I mean, do any of these things interest you? I, I told them the right away. I say, I want to go to the Revenue. Right. And the guy laughs a little bit. He says, you know, that would be great. And all, if that was something that was, you know, I mean, you know, they had their manpower issues that they had to fill, you know, a certain quota for each unit. And the Revenue was not one of them that time. Uh-huh. This was in May of 1985. And in the end, ultimately, uh, you know, the artillery got me. And I didn't find out until later that what I really should have done was, I mean, there's a synagogue on the base in Tel Shomer, And the rabbi there has the same status as any of these interviewing officers. So if I, I all I needed to do was go to the synagogue there, present myself to the lieutenant colonel rabbi, and say, I want to be in the Ravanut. And he would have taken me. Uh -huh. And then that my whole life would have been totally different. Then, you know, I would have gotten into the band and everything. But nope. I ended up in this artillery unit. And I was like, really? I was mad. I was pissed. I was depressed. I was all, all, all the bad things. You know, and then finally after, finally after two days, you know, we got shipped out uh, to our, uh, our basic training unit. Yeah. And on our first on our first day there, you know, our uh, our commanding officer is interviewing all the soldiers one by one. Mm -hmm. And it must have shown on my face how, how angry I was. <laughs> right. I, I didn't I didn't tell him I didn't tell him the whole story, but it was evident. And he essentially ordered me to snap out of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah. But I look, I finished basic training honorably with a with a decent grade. You know, they grade you in these things, you know, yeah. like a test. And, 
Yeah. So for the first, and then they, then I was in an artillery unit that was based mostly in the Jordan Valley. You know, I told them I wanted to be in the center of the country. So okay, so they sent me an hour outside of Jerusalem in the middle of the desert. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and that was depressing enough. Let, let me tell you something. I have to say this. All these years later. Yeah. Had social media existed at the time, I would not have had such a hard time. The really? worst part of it, the worst part of it for me, was feeling isolated and cut off. Yeah, yeah. If I, yeah, once once a week I could get, I you know, or maybe once or twice a week I could stand in line at the phone booth and, and call whoever happens to be home. I mean, great. But, you know, just feeling like cut, cut off from the world was the worst part of it. Yeah, yeah. If, if, you know, so I looked forward to the times that I would get off of base. And the first thing that I would do, even before going home, I would go to Jerusalem because that's where my social life was. Yeah. And I'd, I'd connect with my friends over there, and I'd catch the last bus out of town, uh, you know, to, to Rehovot, and uh, I'd spend Shabbat with my family. And then as soon as it was over, I'd catch the first ride out of town and go back to Jerusalem to get a couple more hours out, out of my, out of my uh, yeah, weekend. one-day pass. And, then, and it's not like the United States where you have, you know, Saturday and Sunday off. I mean, it's just Saturday. Yes, Saturday. It's very intense. Just Saturday. You know? It's Friday, you know, Shabbat starts on Friday, Friday afternoon. So you have all of Saturday, you got Saturday night, and then Sunday morning, you know, you got to be back on base. And yeah, yeah. You know, there, there was, there was, and you know, here I was saying I was refusing to listen to Israeli music, you know, but by the time I was in the army, it couldn't be avoided. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so at the time, there was this, uh, this Israeli, you know, Greek uh, recording, you know, singer songwriter. By the name of Yuda Poliker. Yuda Poliker, who was also in, uh, in yes, and he was—he's a phenomenal guitar player, amazing guitar player. But this was his first solo album. Yeah. Uh, out, out, you know, after he left Benzine, and it was a lot more. He was—he was returning. He was revisiting his roots. Right. And he was doing this whole—this whole. It was in Hebrew, but the music was very Greek influenced. Yes. And there's one song on it. Um, I don't even remember the title. Yeah, I, don't, I, I don't even remember the title, but I'll just sing the first couple of lines. You know, it says "Shesh vachetzi shevashmane boker yom rishon lo rotzelishmaradu lo likroiton." You know, he's talking about what kind of a bummer it is on Sunday morning to have to go back to base. Yeah. <laughs> And, yeah, you know, and I think everybody in Israel, whoever had to, you know, do the military, you know, can totally relate to that. And yeah, and so that's that's really what it was like. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Again, um, it's a combination of really good experiences and really bad experiences. It's very, right. it's amazing. Um, but yeah, speaking of music, I mean, the music at the time. I mean, you have these playlists that you sometimes send me, you know, from mm -hmm. 1978, 1979. Um, and of course, I know all the songs, you know, but music was such a big escape hatch for me at the time. Mm -hmm. It still is. But at the time, it was a real lifesaver. You know, it was a way for me to escape. You know, we, uh, Dire Straits and Super oh, Tramp and all those all those bands of the time were so big. That's right. Um, so I'm just saying that the music, you know, when we talk about music, I, I don't even know if the music was that good. I think it was good. It was but I mean, it's just so nostalgic, right? At this point, well, it's nostalgic. But you also got to remember something else, and and that in Israel, uh, the nineteen eighties music was like the nineteen sixties in America. It was, yeah, it was that kind of a breakthrough. You had Tislam, which was the first Israeli like native hard rock band. 
Right. You know, and several years later, you had Machina, which uh, int- which introduced like this whole ska thing. And, right. And it was it, there was a lot of artists were like totally breaking through. They were starting to rock out. You know, they were leaving the folk music alone, and and, and right. a lot of amazing things were going on at the time. You know. Yeah. 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 It was. Yeah. It was. Um... It was very interesting time musically. I mean, 80s, and even in America, was an interesting time. It was a combination of cheesy music and great music at the same time. Right, right. You know, but um, but I wonder, like, you know, we have this, like, connection with Bruce Springsteen's music. Um, at the time, were you aware of his music? Or when, when did you hear Darkness on the Edge of Town? Okay, so I was still living in the States at the time. I was 12 years old. It was the summer before my bar mitzvah. It was it was August of 1978. Okay, I, I had I, it was a year earlier in 77 when I first began. It was like it was like that Lou Reed song, "Rock and Roll." You know, I, I, I changed the station. I put on a New York station. I couldn't believe what I heard at all. You know, I mean, before yeah. that, before that, I was listening to whatever you know, whatever my parents were listening to. You know, my father used to have like this Jewish station on and uh, on his car radio and uh, all these eight-track tapes of uh, (laughs) Shlomo Karlbach and uh, the Finjan group. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love that stuff. But, you know, rock and roll was totally outside of my my, my sphere of of existence at the time. Yeah, yeah. But, but, you know, by the time I, I reached seventh grade and I was hearing like all the different songs that other kids in my class were listening to and singing, I said, you know something? I'm, I'm, you know, I, I, I remember laying in bed in my house in Long Beach, and I had this radio next to my pillow, and I said, "Okay, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna slide, slide it right on over to WABC 77, you know, music radio, the AM radio. It was like the New York pop station at the time. Yeah, and that's where I started hearing all the songs that that all the kids in my class were singing, and it, it was it. It was an eye opener for me, not just my ears, my eyes. I mean, it was like it was like discovering a whole new world, and, so, and I like plunged into that. And over the next year, it was like, you know, I was listening to all kinds of stations on AM and on FM, and it, I was like really diving deep into it. And uh, yeah, getting back to your question about Bruce, so that happened in the summer of '78. In August of '78, I heard. It was the song was "Prove It All Night." That was yeah. the first Springsteen song that I consciously recall. I mean, yeah, in '76 I heard "Blinded by the Light," but that was Manfred Mann. I didn't know who Springsteen was or anything right. like that. Yeah. But "Prove It All Night" was was like a one-two punch. I mean, it's like first here's this guy with this really rough voice. Yeah, that's backed by a band that that it's unlike anything else I had heard prior to that. And I, it, it made it like raise my antenna, you know, it's yeah. like, Whoa, what is this? Yeah. And yeah. And then shortly after that, I found out about his connection to, to Asbury park and the Jersey shore. And, you know, yeah, I grew up in long Island, but I, I had, my family had friends uh, in the Asbury Park area, and my father in the 1960s had been in the hotel business there, so they they had made all kinds, so we had our connections, and we used to go visit these friends, and every single time I used to go visit the Jersey Shore, it was, for me, it was like going to Disneyland, I mean, you know, we'd hang out, all the kids would be hanging out together in this gigantic house, and then on Sunday, we'd go down to the boardwalk, and you know, Asbury Park then in the late 60s and the, and the early 70s, I mean, 
come on. I mean, you had all the rides and there were people. It was it was before the, all the hell years uh, kicked in. Was, right. So wait. So the, the 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 hell years kicked in later. In, 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 well, the, you could say that they started with the riot in 1970, but you know the rides were still there until the 1980s. And, okay. Okay. Yeah. I, so the thing is that a lot of a lot of people go to Asbury Park because they're Springsteen fans. Yeah. With me, with me, it was exactly the opposite. I already had the prior connection. Just yeah. To Asbury Park, and then when I found out that Springsteen was from there. Right. That cemented the connection. And right. I was I, I I I listened. I mean, first I got the 45 uh, singles, you know, first I got uh, Prove It All Night and Badlands and then yeah. I got Spirit in the Night uh and uh I forget uh, Born to Run was on one side and Spirit in the Night was on the other. Right. And this was before I started buying the album. I, I didn't buy the albums until later. Yeah. Yeah. This was once I was already in Israel and you know, my father would travel back and forth on business, and uh, I would always like, uh, "Oh, can you buy me this? Can you buy me that?" You know, yeah. uh, so so the first thing I did, I'd ask him to, I, I, I asked him to bring back a copy of "Darkness on the Edge of Town." And let right, me let me tell you something. For that, I mean, talk about hell years. For that, for that first horrible year that I spent in Israel in high school in that horrible school and everything like that, that that album became the soundtrack to that i mean yeah. i totally i mean streets of fire when the nights when the night's quiet and you don't mm -hmm. care anymore yeah your eyes are tired and someone's at the door and you realize you want to let go i mean yeah. come on i mean that I, totally spoke to me yeah <laughs> i know yeah man I, I i you know it's so funny i had the same experience that you did but i had it with nebraska mm -hmm. because you know 1980 to 81 82 those were my dark years in israel really and Nebraska came out, and that, that was that was like my Bible. I I I, that, I was that was on. I was like, you know, I'm depressed, but the Bruce is depressed too, and we're both kindred spirits. And I still Nebraska is like such a. But Darkness is a great album too, yeah. for sure. And and, and you, you mentioned before you mentioned Hungry Heart. So this was already when I was in tenth grade in, in in nineteen December of nineteen eighty. Yeah. Where the river came out, and it reached Israel also. And that also, I mean, it was a double album. I mean, this was like a, a treasure trove of all kinds of stuff. But yeah, the one song that sprang off, I mean, it was chock full of great music. But the, the one song that really reached out and grabbed me was Independence Day. Because, oh, wow. yeah. Because I also had a very difficult time uh, with my father. Yeah, um, same here. And it was it was difficult for all sorts of reasons. And Bruce... You know, he sang songs about his relationship with his father. Yeah, and they totally mirrored mine. And yeah, and it, that between between the sound of the Jersey Shore that I heard, I mean, come on, you listen to the E Street Band and you got those keyboards with Roy Bitten and, and Danny Federici. I mean, that's the sound of the Calliope. That's the sound of the merry-go-round on the boardwalk, right? There. Right. So you got that on one hand, and he's singing these songs about about his difficult relationship with his father. It's like. Yeah, that, that was it. I mean, he gave me he gave a voice to all the things that I was feeling. Yeah. Oh, for sure, man. Uh, he was amazing at that. I mean, the angst. He was the voice of the angst, you yes. know, yes. but he also married it with joyful music at the same time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so so but so let's just so did you start writing songs around that time? So I started writing songs. I think I was in 10th grade 
Uh, I had just seen the Blues Brothers movie, uh, and uh, the, you know, between between the Bruce records and you know the whole Blues Brothers thing of putting a band together, I, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. Right, and, and of course, yeah. keyboards was your primary instrument, right? Yes, I I tried guitar, I just could not get five fingers to wrap around. <laughs> yeah, it same. just didn't it just didn't work. And I I had taken piano lessons since I was a kid. I I had given up on the piano lessons because I I just didn't have the patience to to practice scales, and to learn how to sight read. But I I listened. I. I noodled on the piano. I, I drove my my parents and my siblings crazy, you know, hocking away on on, on the piano in the living room when, yeah. I, when I didn't really know what I was doing, right? right? But little by little, things started coming to me. And then once I switched schools and uh, and Izzy and I started putting a band together. And uh, did, 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 did Izzy write songs himself? Well, the two of us, he didn't write at the time. He does now. He has since. I had started when I was younger. Um, there were there were like kind of cheap knockoffs of like Blues Brothers type songs, you know, Twelve Bar Blues, Sweet Home Chicago. I mean, whatever. But then I started. Then once I was in, uh, I the first serious. I mean, the first song I could really call a serious song, like with a pop song structure. Yeah, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, you know, modulation, the whole the whole thing that happened when I was in 12th grade. Oh, wow. The, the song was called I Don't Mind. Uh, you uh -huh. can find it on my Spotify even now. Um, no, not the old demo version, although I, I still have the old demo in my possession. But uh, right. a, a, a newer, you know, more professionally recorded version that you can find on my Spotify channel. Nice. And uh, that was the first pop song that I wrote. And, wow. Yeah, and I'll admit it, it 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 was derivative. I mean, you know, when you know a lot of singers, a lot of songwriters when when they're first starting out, of course. They they wear their influences on their sleeves. Oh, oh, totally. This didn't this didn't sound like Bruce. I mean, one of my earlier influences was actually ELO, which ELO, not, yeah. Which yeah. was another band that was huge in Israel, but I was already a fan a fan when I was living in the States. <laughs> Dude, Discovery record was everywhere. Yeah, Discovery. But before that, there was also... Uh, new World. Was, what is it? Record? Out, a New World record and Out of the Blue. Yeah. Uh, and, there then, was huge. and then came, in 1981, came Time, which was a phenomenal record. I mean, You know what? I don't know that one that well. Yeah, that was the one... That was pretty much the one where ELO e e ELO crashed their car into Pink Floyd's van, and, and you get that album. It was, like, <laughs> it was a whole concept album with sound effects and everything. And oh man, I'm gonna listen to it right yeah, now. Yeah, I I highly recommend it. It's okay. It's, yeah. So, what what's uh, okay? I'll check it out for sure. Yeah, because that, that that that's that's not on my radar. Okay. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So so you started to like the ELO influence kind of creep yeah. in there. So it was there maybe a little bit of sweet was in there in the bridge you know love is like oxygen you know, oh yeah they kind of threw that in there also and but but at the same time it's my song it's clearly i yeah. mean yeah, you can hear the influences but i'm not imitating anybody you know? yeah 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 so and, and, then, think, and then yeah and then you started to write a little bit more frequently after that i started writing a little more you know you know when the dam burst when okay after i finished high school in the summer of 83 I went. I went to the states for the first time since I had moved to Israel four years later. Yeah, and it was it was like my graduation present, you know. And 
I had such a, I mean, I, I, I was up and down the East Coast. I was, I was in Long Island. I was in Jersey. I was in New York City. I was in Delaware. I was in Washington. And, and I was in Miami. And it was such a great time. And I did not want to leave. <laughs> I really did not. In fact, a funny story. I was sitting, I was sitting in, the, in the airport terminal. Uh, this was like Labor Day weekend in, in 1983. And I'm sitting in the airport terminal waiting for our, our seats to be called. And I have this boom box that I had, I had bought that summer. And I, was, I had it on my lap. And I'm fiddling through the radio dial, like the New York radio dial. And all of a sudden, I hear a familiar guitar note. And I say, wait a second, I know that. And I dial it back. And sure enough, it's Bruce. It's the introduction to Kitty's back. Right. And I'm sitting there right there in the airport terminal. I took a, I take a deep breath and I yell, I don't want to go home. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, but I, unfortunately I did. And uh, uh, yeah, I mean, so this was, this was, you had to go back to Israel. You had to, uh, you know, one of the biggest crossroads, you know, you want to talk about roads not taken. I had gone down to Miami ostensibly for a week to visit my friends there. Okay. And I unilaterally, without asking any anybody's permission, you know, extended my ticket. You could do that in those days. Yeah. I called. I called the airline. I want to go back a week later. No problem. They changed my ticket. My mother was not happy. Right. <laughs> and what I should have done. I mean, my 18th birthday was several weeks away. I yeah. Should have, I should have stalled for a couple of more weeks. Mom, I'm staying in Miami. Yeah. Uh, oh man, I, I the, she would have raised the roof, and my father. I mean, it would, but I would have stalled until I was there till the age of eighteen, and then I would have been a legal adult, and that would have been the end of that. I would have stayed. I would have gone to school. I would have gotten a job. I would have put a band together. I had relatives in Miami. They could have, they could have given me a, a job, you know, mopping floors in the hotels that they ran on on Collins Avenue. I mean, you got to start somewhere, right? Right. But I didn't do that. I was a good boy. I went back to, to New York and I got on a plane with my family. And yeah, yeah. So that was the big road not taken. Hey, so man, I have a lot the big of those ones. Roads, I have a lot of those roads. Yeah, yeah. Um, so getting back to your question, it was only after I got back to Israel that, yeah. the, that the dam burst. And I had such a burst of creativity there. Like I, I must have written like close to 30 songs. Wow. In, in that half a year after returning from my trip to the States in 83. Wow. wow. Are you still at the Army at the time? or No, I hadn't. I was. That was when I was attempting to learn in Yeshiva. Oh, so um, this is before this, the Army. This was before the Army. I okay. Mean, everybody, all, all, the, all, the, all of my, my peers from New York were coming to Israel to do their, their what, what today is known as a gap year. Yeah. And they were all in Jerusalem, mostly in Jerusalem at the time. And I wanted a piece of that also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They managed to to finagle a, a deferment from the army so I could go to Yeshiva in Jerusalem. Yeah, yeah. Did I really look? Did I really go to Yeshiva? I mean, did I learn? Yeah, I, I, I used I used the dorm as a hotel basically. And right. All I did was hang out with my friends and put a band together. And we we we. One of my old friends from Long Beach was going to Yeshiva at a hotel, a guitar player. Uh, and uh, we put a band together with several others. Yeah. of us, And we had this blowout of a gig on New Year's Eve. Yeah. It was not an original band, although I, I did have the songs, but first we were, just, we were just playing everybody else's music. and, and But it was such a party that night. And huh. everybody who was anybody that year was at this gig. And it's funny because the word about this show got out. 
to the yeah. yeshivas. And the rabbis were actually telling their students, if we find out that any of you are at this show, you are out. Really? And my friend, the guitar player, the very next day got tossed out of his yeshiva. Really? A lot of other people got, they were dismissed also. And guess what? So was I. Not the next day. Wow. Several, several days later, I was cornered in the yeshiva dining room by the, uh, I guess, the head dorm counselor there. Yeah. He gave me an ultimatum. He says, look, you, you know, this isn't a hotel. Yeah. If you're going to be here. You got to go to classes. <laughs> so either you go to class or you leave. Yeah. So what did I do? I went to one class. I was <laughs> bored out of my mind. And I said, okay, that's it. I'm out of here. Well, this, this this is interesting. This actually brings, if you don't mind, let's talk a little bit about the religion aspect of our okay. life, okay? Because I, I grew up as a rabbi's son, mm -hmm. and because I had a troubled relationship with my father, I started to get away from the religion part. And I and I still love, of course, all the uh, you know spiritual aspects of uh, Jew, being Jewish, but I still have a hard time with going to synagogue, and because I, I have all these associations that are not so nice. So, and I think you've been in and out of being religious and not religious and back yeah. and forth. I'm just wondering how you feel about that. Yeah, look, it's, uh, I, I, I grew up in a, uh, in a modern Orthodox home in Long Island. Uh, however, my father, okay, my father, my father, before the Holocaust, he grew up in Europe in a Hasidic family. Yeah. And somehow when he was still, you know, a boy, he became enamored of, of Zionism, you know, which his father, who I'm named after, uh, was totally against. Uh -huh. and, uh, and my father said, I think the only time his father ever smacked him one was, was when he found out that he was, my father was going to a Beitar meeting on, on Shabbat afternoon. <laughs> and uh, at, at, at any rate, uh, he survived the Holocaust at a young age. He, when the whole thing was over, he wasn't quite 15 years old. Uh -huh. And one of the things that, I mean, he wasn't, I mean, he, he lost his religion during that whole thing. Yeah. You no, know? I mean, yeah, he, he, he reconnected with whatever family members were left uh, and eventually made his way first to Israel uh, and then to the United States. Mm -hmm. And he met my mother, very, very long story, very made very short. He met my mother in the summer, I believe, of 1959, and they were both waiting tables at a hotel in Long Beach. Okay. That's, that's where they met. Yeah. My father was not religious at the time. I mean, look, this was a, this hotel was run by some relatives. of It was a kosher hotel. It had its own, you know, Shomer Shabbat, you know, clientele. My, it was run by relatives of my mother's, actually. That's how she got there. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah. And... Uh, Although he wasn't religious, so you know they started, uh, they got interested in each other and started dating and everything, and eventually they got they got married in November of 1960. But not before, not before. Okay, when my father went to meet my mother's parents, or or actually, I think he had, he had probably already met them at that time. But you know, in in a bygone era, you know, a a young man would ask you know, permission. ask permission from, from the girl's parents, you know. So I guess when he was going to meet my grandparents and ask their permission, ask for my mother's hand, you know, so to speak, uh, my grandfather made it conditional. He says, well, if you want to marry her, you uh, got to promise me that you're going to send your kids to yeshiva. Wow. 
My grandfather was a cantor. He was a chazan uh, at the Aras Kodesh El Emeth Synagogue in Wilmington, Delaware. Okay. And he was, as such, he was a pillar of the community. And, you know, he was Orthodox as well, you know. Yeah. Uh, he had also, he wasn't a Holocaust survivor. He had come to the States in the, in the, in the 1930s before the war started. But he, he still had that, that European, uh, that middle European background as well. And right. For him, it was very important. I mean, especially since, you know, my, my mother had three brothers, uh, two of whom were not religious anymore. The youngest one w went to yeshiva, and he did stay religious. But yeah, it was very important to my grandfather that you know he have grandchildren that that would be that would be religious, that would have the, the Orthodox background and everything. So yeah, so my father obviously he he agreed, and uh, but he didn't he didn't quite he didn't quite become observant again in the full sense of the word until I was already going to kindergarten. Okay, and although yeah, we had it was it was it was a religious home and everything like that. You know, it was Shomer Shabbos, it was kosher, it was everything. Right. right. Uh, but did you, did you go to synagogue every Saturday? Every every, every Saturday, really. And, right. Uh, and you know, it, the, the town that I lived in had a very robust uh, Jewish community. And right. Like half a dozen different synagogues. We 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 went to. It, it, again, it's a long story. I, I I could really go on for a long. Yeah, time. yeah, no, it's fine. But but so but then when you were in Israel and had a hard yeah. time there, do you? I think you kind of got away from the religious aspects. Well, not 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 so much. So I mean, it, I I have to I have to say that uh, you know when I was in that first high school I was in, it was extremely difficult. I mean, there were a lot of kids that I was in school with that did leave during that time and dumped right. the, and dumped the whole thing and became you know secular. And it was really because. The rabbis and the religious establishment really made the whole thing ugly. Yeah, and yeah, and I'm I'm I myself. I look back at those years, and it's like uh, it's it's amazing that I still have any positive feelings for it after the BS that I had to go through with those people. Yeah, yeah, and, but yeah. it didn't. But I but I hung on. Believe it or not, I hung on during those years. And yeah. Although towards the end, you know, I was in the army. It was like my last half a year of the of, of service, and I, I I would come home for for Shabbat, and I would attend services with my father. And the feeling I I got a physically, it was a physical feeling of like a gnawing black hole in my chest. Yes, yes, that's the way I feel when I go into synagogue, man. And I wish I just, that way. I mean, my my modern Orthodox religious Zionist up, upbringing really ceased to have any kind of meaning to me it was just i was going through the motions because that's what i was used to i right. and, you know i right. was honoring, honoring my parents and everything yeah. But it, 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 yeah it felt like homework or something right. exactly and and i and i again i hung on even longer i got married for the first time shortly after i finished uh, my military uh, service yeah and i came back to the states to go to college and i lived in boston at the time and our marriage, very again, very long story made very short. <laughs> yeah, the marriage didn't quite last two years, and yeah. and the circumstances of the divorce were such that I really ended up leaving religion or religious observance at that point as well. Because, gotcha. Because the, the yeah. rabbis that did my get, you know, that did the religious divorce, uh, two out of three of them you know 
they they made me out to be the big the big villain you know based on like almost no testimony out of my mouth and it was just a really and 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 to me it's like if these if these were the representatives of god on earth then i'm sorry i don't want to have anything to do with these yeah it left a really bad taste in your mouth extremely and and you know i had been dealing the whole time with all these people insisting that i choose between being a rock and roll musician and being a religious Jew. And right. it does not have to be such a con. I mean, look, when I, one of the people that I met when I was putting the band together when, you know, earlier was a fellow named Emil. He lived next to my yeshiva dorm. He was a refugee from the sixties. He had been a total hippie who had come to Israel and he had brought all of his musical equipment with him. I mean, and his, and his, he was an older guy. He was like some 16 years older than me. And, just about everything I ever learned about, you know, bands and how they work. And, and you know, I learned from him, really. Right. And he was the he was the guitar player uh, in our first band. And he was a Balchuva and he was religion. He was like a really cool, you know, cool Jew, you know? Yeah. yeah. And he was, he, just with one power chord on his Telecaster, he drowned out all the noise that all the rabbis were making about, oh, you can't be one and the other at the same time. <laughs> right. Because, because he was proof that, yes, you can. Yeah. But nobody in Boston wanted to hear that. And nobody before, you know, they, I mean, I mean, the, 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 the Rosh Yeshiva, you know, the, the, the dean of the, of the high school, the second one, the good one. You know, even he wasn't happy with uh, the fact that Izzy and I were putting together a band. Right. And he he would sick some of his other rabbis against me. One guy cornered me in the dormitory and told me in no uncertain terms that, you know, you can't, you cannot, you know, being a, being in a rock and roll band, you know, you're never going, you know, all the, all the, all the stuff, right. you know, right. excuse me. Like it, right. Like it kind so, of, yeah, so yeah. so when my when my marriage broke up uh in this in the end of the summer of 1990 yeah so my religion got tossed out with that also okay and, and then, and, then and yeah from that point forward for a period of close to 10 years i would play gigs on any night of the year with two exceptions right. i drew the line at yom kippur sure and the first night of passover sure but any other night I'll, you know, I'll play. I'm in. Right. Count me in. Right. It was only after my younger daughter was born. This was after my, my you know, my second wife. She, she who you knew. Okay, yes. Who, who, who actually was with me when, when well, we met. Yeah, we met at a Peter Hillman concert. It was, a, it was another example of being, a, a, you know, a religious person and being a rock and roller. Exactly. It's a sterling example of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was only after that, uh, after my younger daughter, after the baby was born, that I really started having second thoughts because I was playing a gig on Friday night. And this was in 1999. And I was at 99 or was it 2000 already? I, whatever. I mean, my, my daughter was still a baby at the time. And yeah. I was playing a gig at the Water Club in Manhattan, which is this really fancy place. It's, it's on a barge that's lashed to the bulkhead in midtown Manhattan. Yeah. And it's a really fancy gig. And I had this panoramic view across the East River to the, to the Queens and Brooklyn skyline. Right. And out of the corner of my eye, of my right eye, I could see, you know, the the uh, the high rises in in Williamsburg, where I knew my Hasidic relatives lived. Yeah. And and I'm thinking to myself, you know, 
they don't know what I'm doing right here, right now on Friday night playing music, but I know what they're doing over there. <laughs> and, uh, and that really began to turn the gears in my head because I was thinking, you know, after 10 years of doing this, I'm thinking, you know, something's missing. Something's missing. Well, you know, I got to tell you, I had a, the interesting experience with you in Los Angeles when oh, yes. we went to this place called the uh, the Happy Minion. The Happy Minion, yes. And it was a real revelation to me because to me, religion was, you know, was associated with my father and it was kind of a, you know, a dark experience of, of, of uh, but the Happy Minion was, they, they, they prayed out of joy. Totally. And not just that. I mean, you know, the, the cantor, the, 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 the shliach tzibur, you know, the, the, chazan, the chazan over there is a rock and roll front man. Okay. Oh, it's, it's Yehuda Solomon of the Moshav band. I mean, Which is a great band. You're, you're not going to find that in these typical, or at least at the time. I mean, things might have changed, but, you know, things yeah. are different now than they used to be. But, you know, yeah. but, but yeah. he's, he's, he's like one of the main reasons for that, <laughs> you know, yeah. for, making, for making it cool again. Yeah, and, boy, uh, what a great shot yeah. it is, huh? But I, I have to say, though, is that I didn't suddenly become... You know, after that night at the water club, I didn't suddenly become a Jose Bichuvan and, and and become, you know, one of these nutcase, uh, you know, fanatics. You know, so much fanatics right away. Okay, I, I didn't swallow the whole thing hook, line, and sinker. Not at all. In fact, even during the time that I that I wasn't religiously observant, I was saying, you know, look, I I still love and respect our tradition. However, I dislike the guilt. Yeah, all the negativity and you right. know, yeah, they they pay, you know, they they there's ahava, there's love, and there's yira. Now, yira is a problematic term because literally it means fear, mm -hmm. and I don't want fear. I don't yeah. want fear. I don't want negativity. I don't want guilt. Right. We want to come back to it from a place of love. Right. You know, as soon as it starts becoming. Oh, you have to do it this way. You have to do yeah. As soon as it's you have to, it's like okay, yeah. catch me at the water club on Friday night again because yeah, I, I'm out of here. I don't need absolutely, this. absolutely, man. You know? Yeah. So for right. a while, I, I began reintroducing Shabbat into my. I, I called the moratorium on Friday night gigs. Yeah. The band that I was in, which totally took them by surprise, because I had not like displayed any kind of discontent. They thought that I was having a great time, and I was. Right. I wasn't going to start giving them a whole lecture about you know I don't roll on Shabbos, you know, and all the rest of that stuff, you know. Right. But I, I just told them it was really because you know I I want to start spending Friday nights with my family, which was also true, you know. But yeah. But uh, but you know then I, I wasn't a hundred percent, and I I still wasn't a hundred percent until. I got to Los Angeles and I was introduced to the Happy Minion. That was that's where I came home. Yeah, that's where I found the love without the without the fear and guilt. Yeah, it's an amazing experience. It really is. I mean, if that if there was a Happy Minion around here, I'd probably oh, that's one big hole in my life right now. That nothing like that exists here. I mean, yeah, you got the Karl Bach Shul in New York, and that's great, but it's not the same. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I know. It's a, it's a real interesting experience to actually come from uh, to approach it from a from a from a point of view of joy and love, like you say, instead of this obligation, you know, feeling. Mm -hmm. um, I still I still have to sort it out because I really, yeah. you know, I really admire people that have absolute faith and um, and it's something that I struggle with, you know. Yeah. I, I feel very spiritual, but I don't. 
I have a problem going into a synagogue because of all the associations that I have with it. You you got you got to find you know a person has to find their own path. Yeah, yeah, um, for sure. But now, so but now, but now you definitely observe Shabbat now and. Well, yeah, I, I do. I mean, look, I'm not. I didn't suddenly become a, a hat wearing Orthodox uh, from me. I mean, that's that's not me at all, and right. it, and it I, probably never will be. I mean, I'm I still, I'm still the Hesh, you know. I'm still a rock and roll guy, you know. But but you know. Yeah, I know, I know. I so keep, I keep Shabbos. I keep kosher, you know. And it's a it's and, a nice part of your life now. Yeah, and you know, other things, to, other things to, to to various degrees, you know. Yeah. I, I yeah. found I found my comfort level with certain things, and, and yeah, I'm yeah, okay with that. You know? So listen, uh, this is going to cut me off in a few minutes here because it, this gives me just sixty minutes. But I, I did want to address the uh, the thing that you've been working on. Uh, just tell me a little bit about the Soul in Exile project. Okay, well, Soul in Exile is the name of I I call it my magnum opus. You know, it's it's not it's not my autobiography, but it, it is semi autobiographical. It's it's I always I always wondered, you know, what would Bruce Springsteen have done had he not had that horrible lawsuit in the 1970s what direction would, would he have taken yeah so i always envisioned the sequel to born to run you know mashed up with pink floyd's the wall you know? wow and you know i i i think i did a pretty good uh you know but but the thing is is that it's it, there's like a lot of songs that talk about you know making making a person's way in the world and there's there's lots of different elements to it but again it's it's my it's again it's not I'm not trying to be Bruce here. No, I, mean, I know. Of Bruce is my biggest influence, or was my biggest influence for for the longest time. Yeah. So if you're going to listen to those records, you're going to hear you're going to hear Jersey Shore rock and roll, but you're going to hear other things too. So is is Soul in Exile a compilation of many many albums together? Well, yeah. Well, so far there are four of them. That have oh, been okay. And there are three more in the pipeline, actually. So it's like Soul Exile one, two, three, yeah. and. Now one, okay, one, two, and three, uh, you can find online mostly. Best place to find them is at Bandcamp. Go to theheshinc.bandcamp.com. Okay, um, and you will find my albums there. And I, I last uh, January I put out a, I guess I call it Soul and Exile Redux. Uh, it's a long story about the, the different song. Uh, you know configurations and everything but it's it's pretty much it's pretty much stated it's pretty much telling the whole story in the space of one album right okay um, it's kind of restating the first three without you know again I, i'm i'm kind of losing the thread here but no it, no no it's fine it's fine that's just like you know but so but yeah. so like you know so it's chronological like yeah. so, you know it's it's all Soul in Exile one is from your, your first recordings, and then two is the you know the next is like it's like right. okay yeah, but actually three okay. I mean again, I mean one was a semi-acoustic record. It's kind of like my Nebraska. Yeah, it was. It, was, it started off. It's just it, eight out of nine songs are just piano and voice. Okay, and then when I did the subsequent albums, I split up the songs a, across several of the discs, but in full band arrangements. Yeah. You know, so, okay, and 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 each of these albums tell their own story as well. I mean, it's not just you know a collection of songs you know slapped together. There's there's a there's a coherent whole. To there's that. a yeah, there's a thread, and you called it Soul in Exile. Is that yeah. is that is that because of the way you felt in Israel? It was because of the way I felt in Israel, and also the way I felt even in the United States. You know, just just not really finding my place for, for so long. You know, I know I, I lived in so many places. Even within within the United States, I mean, I, I lived 
within the state of New Jersey, I must have lived in a dozen places and in New York. And I, I went back to my old hometown of Long Beach several times. Right. And, and I was in Philadelphia and I was in Los Angeles and, you know, and various places. I, I L.A., I loved it there. You know, Philadelphia, I couldn't stand it. <laughs> right. And each place had, yeah, had its plus and had its minuses. And uh, so if, if you, you know, had one place you wanted to live, where do you think it would be? You know, if if I could wipe away all of Los Angeles's current political social issues, yeah, and make it, and make it the way it was in the early two thousands, yeah, I'd go back there and I'd go back there in a heartbeat. Really? Wow! Wow! And be a part of the Happy Minion again. Absolutely. Unfortunately, things don't stay the same. And uh, I mean, the Happy Minion itself is actually doing very well. They're finally moving into their own premises uh, nice. within the next couple of weeks. Nice um yeah i mean i guess but i guess the idea is that you know it's a cliche but the soul in exile it has to come from inside right yeah it is it's it, it, it's really if if you want to just say what what's it all about okay it's about finding one's place uh, the the attempt of trying to find one's place in the world absolutely and, and and then realizing that it comes from someplace deep inside as opposed to getting it externally i think yeah but but it is great to live in a place that you feel comfortable in. Comfortable and connected. Yeah. Yeah. And we have all these musicians that we both have connections with. Uh, Mark Nuzzi, right, from Soul Engines. He's oh, a yeah. He's, uh, he, some people just have, have this gift of being a front man. Uh, and he, he, he totally has it. <laughs> And you played on some of his records, is that and right? No, I actually didn't play on. He played on on one of mine, actually. Oh, okay. Um, okay. And he's been trying to get me, uh, you know. And you know, Mark, if you're listening to this, okay, I'm always available. Yeah. <laughs> but it just, but it just hasn't worked out yet. Yeah, yeah. He for, does for gigs. whatever reason. Yeah, he lives next to me somewhere here, yeah. and he does gigs, and he's a. I, I love that guy. He's a great voice too. Mm -hmm. And uh, Bruce Tunkel, yeah. oh, he's. He's a, he's a friend of yours too, right? Yeah, I, I don't remember exactly where we connected. It was somewhere in the Jersey Shore scene, but yeah. uh, he has yeah. a studio in his house and I recorded some demos by him as well. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to talk to him someday too. I mean, there's all these people that... Uh, but uh, but listen, I think we covered a lot of good stuff here. This is going to cut me off in about a minute. So okay. I, just want, I just wanted to say, hey man, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I mean, if there's anything else that you want to say, you know, just in terms of, uh, so let's let's promote again. It's the, it's the Bandcamp. Yeah. Good. You could go to theheshinc.bandcamp.com, and you can also go to theheshinc.com. That's my website. And and you're also on Spotify. I'm on Spotify. You just uh, search for the, the Hesh Inc. and you'll find me there. Yeah. Okay, man. That's great. That's great. Well, we'll we'll do this again sometime, man. Great. I look forward. Yeah, there's a lot of things that we haven't uh, we, we we could get deeper into a lot of things here. For sure. But I'm really glad you sound like you're in a good place, and I, you know, um, we, you've been through a lot, and I've been through a lot, and we're still we're still rocking, right? Still rocking. <laughs> I'm rocking in the free world, baby. <laughs> All right, man. On that note. Okay. Uh, thank you so much. You're welcome. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. All right, man. Been great. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.